0: Mark chapter 9. Let's stand together, please, for the reading of the Word of God. And just a bit of review from last Sunday. We had an afternoon service last Sunday and and studied the subject of the challenges of following Jesus. And it is a challenge to follow Jesus. In the passage we covered, if you just look right above that in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus said in verse 34... Uh, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. Verse 36, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And then verse 38, whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words. uh, When the Son of Man comes, he'll be ashamed. And so this was... The passage that we dealt with last week uh, in the afternoon service. That brings us to Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Let's look at that together. It says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them which stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an holy, or extended a high mountain apart by, him, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Not only was Jesus there transfigured in their presence, there appeared unto them Elias, Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah or Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any anymore save Jesus only with themselves." And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And, you know, I know we say this about a lot of things. I preface what I'm about to say by that statement But this is really one of the most remarkable events in all of the Bible to me. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ. If you'd just follow the passage today and give your heart and mind to thinking about what was transpiring, is really one of the most incredible moments uh, in the life of Jesus on this earth and the ministry of the disciples. And so let's ask God to bless and help us today as we look at that simple subject The Transfiguration. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your word. The word that you've given to us. Lord, that we could study it, that we could learn from it, that we could be changed by it. That we could be built up, edified, and strengthened. We pray today that your word would indeed be like a sword and like a hammer. Lord, that would work on our hearts. We pray for those who are here that are not saved. That, Lord, their minds, their hearts would be opened. The light of the gospel would shine deep within and show them their need for Christ. We pray for these things today. And for your people, for the, those who are saved, may we be helped today by the word of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Verse 1 of chapter 9, I think, deserves a little bit of attention before we get into the transfiguration that begins in verse 2. In verse 1, it says, And he said unto them, Uh, Just that that introduction to verse 1 kind of lets us know that he's talking about what has been taking place prior to that. And just a word of explanation. You know, the chapter divisions and the verses that we have in our Bible, like verse 38 or verse 32 or chapter 8 or chapter 9, those, those chapter divisions were not in the original writings of the Scripture. They were added for convenience. They were added to help people in their Bible study. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're not inspired of God. And sometimes uh, they, you'd find, and I think it helps in Bible study. For instance, if you... If you're reading, for instance, uh, 1 Corinthians thirteen, that whole chapter that deals with charity, the, the the chapter breaks help us in our Bible study sometimes. But in this case, uh, chapter one of verse nine of chapter uh, verse one of chapter nine, excuse me, actually goes with the the scripture before that, where he's talking about the cost of following Jesus, the challenge of following Jesus. And he says in verse 1 of, of chapter 9... I want to read it again. I hope you're looking at it. And he said unto them... Those people he was speaking to... In verses 34 and following... Verily I say unto you... That there be some of them... That stand here... Which shall not taste of death... Till they shall have seen... The kingdom of God come with power. Now that's an interesting statement. He said are people who are standing here today listening to me, that will not die, will not taste of death, this is going to happen before you die, that they will see the kingdom of God come with power. And so the question is, what is he referring to? The kingdom of God coming with power. Well, we know it's not talking about his second coming, his future coming, because that still hasn't happened. And he said it would happen before some of those people died. Some people think, well, maybe he's talking about his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And maybe that's what he's talking about when he says, there's some of you listening to me that will still be living when the kingdom of God comes in power. But I think he's really more likely talking about what he's going to say beginning in verse 2. And verse 2 says, And after six days, Jesus, and he introduces this matter of his transfiguration... So after six days, there are going to be people see him coming in, in, in glory and power as he's transfigured before them. Look what it says in verse 2. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now we're going to look more closely at this in a moment. But let's just hold your finger here in mark, if you would, and we'll come right back. But go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about this experience in his second epistle. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to read a few verses. And notice the language that Peter uses to describe the transfiguration. 2 Peter chapter 1 And I want to begin reading in verse 16. Peter writes, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, two reasons I turn to that text. Number one, just to get Peter's perspective on what occurred on the mount of transfiguration but also the language he uses about the excellent glory. And go back to Mark chapter 9 then, and you see where Jesus said, there'll be those in verse 1 who will not taste of death till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. So I, I submit to you today that my view is this talking about the, trans, the transfiguration that is about to occur. So let's look at this subject of the transfiguration. The Bible says in verse 2 that Jesus took three people with him, Peter, James, and John. I find it very interesting that he took James and John, which are brothers of all the people he could have taken to take two siblings. I think it's pretty interesting. And it says in verse 2 that he took them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. So they were alone They were separated, they were apart. And verse 2 uses this word to describe what occurred. He was transfigured. Now the word transfigured means to be transformed. The the word that's translated from the Greek into the English is metamorpho, which is like where we get our word metamorphosis. Like what would happen, you know, when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly or when a bullfrog, uh, you know, it comes from a tadpole, it's a metamorphosis, it's a change. And so Jesus was transformed, he was changed. It says in verse 3, if you look there with me, His raiment, His clothing became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. There you couldn't take anything to the to the laundromat, uh, and or the, to the cleaner and get it as white as the raiment of Jesus was. It doesn't say here in Mark, Mark's gospel, but it says in in one of the other gospels, in Matthew's gospel, that it was uh, his face was actually shining. It was this Jesus is transfigured now. Just kind of. Focus your mind on that if you could. Peter, James, and John, they're there on a mountain. I think it's Luke's gospel that says he was praying, Jesus was, and he became, became this bright, glowing light. Brighter than anything you could imagine. No cleaner could get clothes that, that clean, that white. And what was happening was, Jesus, for this brief moment, was being manifested in His glory. His, his robe of flesh that, his, that, he, that he was in, in, God incarnate, was not preventing Him from revealing His glory. It was unveiled. They saw something that they had never seen before. Now, people in the Old Testament, these were men were Jews. Peter, James, and John were Jews. And the Jewish people... We're very familiar with the manifested glory of Jesus in the Old Testament. At the dedication of the tabernacle, at the dedication of the temple, there would be other times when God would show up, maybe in a pillar of fire, maybe in a cloud. They would see this manifestation of God's glory, but the disciples had never seen anything like this, nor would they ever see anything like this. You know, one remarkable thing about the incarnation, about Jesus becoming a man, is that he made himself in his appearance to be natural, to be normal. I mean, when you saw Jesus, you would not think of him being God because of the way he appeared. And it's really an amazing thing to think that God, who's, who's, who fills the universe with his presence, could make himself Known, identified in a human body without people being able to see by any outward sign that they were looking at God. And that's exactly the way Jesus was. But at this moment, his appearance was not natural. It was supernatural. It was, it was full of glory. Now, he had not changed. Jesus had not changed inwardly, he, he was still the same almighty creator who lived inside this human body, but he was changed outwardly. And people could see him. These three men could see him. And uh, again, Matthew said his face shined as the sun. Imagine that. His face shining as the sun. And the, re- the words we read a moment ago, I just want to repeat them, where Peter said in his second epistle... We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he said, this voice which came from heaven, we heard. This, this was an incredible, ama- I mean, these disciples saw a lot of incredible stuff. They saw people raised from the dead. They saw blinded eyes see and lame people walk. I mean, they saw a lot of, a lot of stuff. Thousands of people fed with a few biscuits and a couple of sardines. I mean, they saw a lot of stuff in their life. But they never saw anything like this. As a matter of fact, John, in his first epistle, or in his first the first chapter of his his letter, his gospel, John said this: We beheld his glory. John's one of the men there. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Peter wrote about it sometime later. We saw this. And John wrote about it. We saw his glory. We beheld his glory. Now, we don't know what Jesus looked like before he became a man. We don't know that. But when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, just after this, Jesus prayed this. I want to read a few words. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Which thou hast given me. So we don't know exactly what he looked like, but we have some glimpses, for instance, in Revelation chapter one and other places in Revelation, where his eyes are like a burning fire, where his where, you know, when we see Jesus, it's not just going to be what we might imagine he's going to look like. And in this scene, for just a brief moment, Jesus, his glory is revealed. And his face is shining like the sun and his clothing is white, is whiter than anyone could ever imagine. And then, on top of that, verse 4 says, Two people showed up and there appeared unto them Elias or Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Imagine this scene now. Imagine this. Jesus has been transfigured before you. At one point, I think it's Matthew's gospel said, these, four, these three men just fell on their face. Understandably so. But now, now two, two characters from the Old Testament. Moses, who represents the law. And Elijah, I believe, who represents the prophets, they show up and they're talking with Jesus. And wouldn't you like to know what they're talking about? And the Bible doesn't sell us everything they were talking about, but we know a major part of what they were talking about because Luke says this. They spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They... Moses and Elijah show up And they're talking to Jesus About the fact that he's going to die in Jerusalem He's going to be crucified in Jerusalem Now the cross, even at this point Is incomprehensible to the disciples They're still struggling you see that, we'll repeat it in a moment They were still struggling with what he meant When he said, I'm going to raise from the dead They didn't get it, but I'm telling you Elijah and Moses knew exactly what the cross was about They were talking about this. And we don't know, again, any more than what the Bible says. There's no point in in conjecture or speculation. But I wonder if Elijah and Moses wouldn't have been talking to Jesus just to encourage him and what's about to happen in his life. That the cross is looming in the future. The agony of the cross the price of the cross the penalty that he would pay for sin and in just a, you know we read this a moment ago in mark chapter 8 but a little bit prior to that just before this a few days before this maybe less than a week before this in a conversation that peter had and jesus said he was going to die look at, let's look at that in mark chapter 8 and verse Thirty-one. It says, And he, talking about Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He told the disciples this in verse 32. Peter rebuked him. Peter would not hear of the fact that Jesus was going to die. And then verse 33, of course, Jesus rebuked Peter. And said, get thee behind me, Satan. We've covered all that. So the cross is on the horizon. The cross is near in the future. And I know this is looking at it as a human, which is the only way I know to look at it. But if I was Jesus, I think I'd want somebody that I could talk to about what the future held. You say, well, why didn't he talk to his disciples? Because they weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. They still couldn't wrap their head around what's happening. But I tell you, who did show up and knew what was happening? Moses and Elijah showed up. And what they talked about, other than the fact that he was going to die, the Bible does not tell us. So, look with me in chapter 9, if you would, of Mark, in verse 5. It says, Peter answered, I mean, think about this. Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. So, Peter, in typical fashion, Peter spoke up. Why, we're not surprised. He had this tendency, right? And he spoke up. And I would think after the last thing he said, right? Remember the last thing he said when he said, we're not going to let this happen, Jesus. And Jesus said, get them behind me, Satan. I would be thinking he would be on his best behavior. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say everything that crosses my mind. But Peter, like we sometimes, he has a hard time doing that. And so he says, it's good for us to be here. Well, that's an understatement. It's good for us to be here. Then he says, let's make three tabernacles. Several things come to mind when I read that. One of them is he's probably never been in a building program before. (laughs) Or he wouldn't be suggesting, let's build three buildings. But a part of it is like Peter's saying, he still doesn't get it. Jesus is not about building tabernacles. He's going to go to the cross. But he makes this comment. And, and if you were to ask the question, and I would want to ask this question, Peter, why would you say such a thing? Why would you say such a thing at this moment? And if you look in your Bible, it tells us why. Verse 6. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. He didn't know what to say, so he just said that. He didn't know what to say, so he says, let's... Let's just build three tabernacles. Let's build three buildings. Can I just suggest today that sometimes it's best to say nothing. (laughs) Amen. So with that transpiring, God said something. God the Father. Verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. A cloud covered and surrounded them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son hear him. In other words this is not a time for talking. This is a time for listening. This is my beloved son hear him. Now that cloud was a symbol. It was a a, a means for them to recognize God's presence, that God is here, and this voice, an audible voice, I'm telling you, this is unlike anything else you'll find in the New Testament. Jesus is transfigured before them. His appearance is unlike anything they've ever seen. Moses and Elijah are speaking with him. The cloud overcomes them, and there's a voice, an audible voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And then the Bible says in verse 8, And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. Immediately, suddenly, they were alone with Jesus. The glory was gone. Moses and Elijah were gone. The cloud was gone. The transfiguration was gone. And they just saw Jesus only with them. We'll come back to this, but let's look at verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, so now we find them walking down from the mountain. Jesus, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Don't tell anybody what you have seen. And verse 10 says, And they kept that saying with themselves. They probably made a pact within themselves, but they certainly kept... "...the secret within themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean." So they were talking to each other. They still didn't understand what that meant. But they were under this strict gag order. Don't tell anyone about the transfiguration. Now imagine that Peter having to sit on that information for a while. Don't tell anybody the transfiguration. Don't tell anybody you saw Moses and Elijah. Don't tell anybody that you heard the voice of God. Don't tell anybody. And apparently they kept the secret among themselves. But as I said earlier, in verse 12, verse 10 it says, they were still confused about this rising from the dead and what it meant. Now, as I think about this great event, it's just a wonderful thing to read, to meditate about, to contemplate, to think about it. That hinders us in our spiritual growth sometimes is the fact that we don't think. And we don't want to learn. We don't care to learn. We've not put a I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm painting with a wide brush, but but You know, to grow as a Christian, you have to care about details. You have to think about what you read and meditate upon it and try to imagine it in your mind. And as I do that, this is just a wonderful passage. And if a person were to ask me, you know, why do you think Jesus did this? And I would have to say, I'm not sure. I'm not completely sure for sure. I'm not sure. But I might. I'm going to speculate a little bit today about why he would transform himself in such a magnificent, powerful, majestic way. And I think it was so timely. He didn't do this early in his ministry. I mean, this great confession that Peter had just made at the... um, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God at Caesarea Philippi. This was such a a pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. As I've mentioned several times, he's only now a few months away from the cross. So why at this particular time would he he show these three men such a a once-in-a-lifetime event? And I'm thinking part of it had to do with what they're about to go through. What Jesus is about to go through, what they're about to go through, it's like this is a glimpse, gentlemen, of what the future will be like. Because in the short term, the short term future is going to be painful beyond imagination. Not only is it going to be painful for Jesus because he's going to suffer and die For the sins of the whole world. And as much as I've tried, I feel as helpless today as I was when I started preaching 40 years ago. I feel helpless to begin to understand what Jesus went through on the cross. But it's getting closer and closer. But not only the pain that Jesus would suffer... But the pain that all of those who follow him, short term and long term, were going to suffer. Their lives would not be easy. Of the 12 men who started out with Jesus, of course, Judas would be a traitor and betray him. The other 11 would all die a martyr's death. The only one who would not be actually killed would be John who's here but he was exiled on the isle of patmos for his faith and these and they just represented what disciples were going to go through we talked about the martyrs this past wednesday night in services their lives are not easy you may they may have thought it was going to be easy when they started following him but right now at this moment i assure you they had no real concept of what they're about to face but jesus knew And it was almost like he was saying, look, whatever you go through, I want to let you know that what you're experiencing in this life is not all there is. I want you to get a glimpse of what it's going to be like on the other side. A lot of scriptures in our New Testament deal with that. For instance, Paul wrote this, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, we're talk, um, the man who's writing has been stoned, he's been left for dead, he's been beaten to a pulp, he's been betrayed. He calls it light affliction. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're to live by faith. God's people are to live by faith. Faith not in our feelings. Faith not in our circumstances. Faith not in what we see, but faith in God's promises. But here for just a moment, their faith became sight. And they could see the glory of the one they were following. The glory of of the promise of their future. As I was preparing and studying about this the last day or so, I kept, I kept thinking about a song that was in our hymn book. This, the first verse says, Oh, what glory awaits me in heaven's bright city. When I get there, what sights I'll behold. A million scenes of rare beauty will demand that I view them, but Jesus will outshine them all. Mansions will glisten on the hills of glory, happy reunion on streets of pure gold, angel choirs singing, glad praises forever, but Jesus will outshine them all. Just for a moment, Jesus was pulling back the curtain and letting them see that no matter what we go through, no matter how much pain is in the future, no matter what you see me endure, no matter what you see others endure, no doubt many of his followers have watched as their friends and fellow laborers and loved ones have been burned at the stake. They've been beaten. They've been tortured. But he was letting them see that his glory his glory began to shine like the sun and Moses and Elijah are there speaking with him and they heard God speaking in an audible voice. And it's like to me saying, suffering will come. They would suffer and they'd see others suffer. But, And by the way, the same is true for us. We're going to see days of darkness and times of loneliness, but this is not all there is. The future is bright for the children of God. I would like to think that after Jesus raised from the dead, and I have no reason not to believe this is true, that these three would tell their story. After, he, after they went through those agonizing three days and three nights when Jesus was no longer with them, they were hiding in the upper room for fear, and finally it got through to them. Finally they understood he's alive. No doubt they pulled this out and fumbled all over themselves to tell the story of what they'd seen on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. As quickly as the manifestation of his glory had come, though, it was gone. And they were alone with Jesus. And all they had left was the memory of what had taken place. Peter didn't want it to end. That's why he wanted to build buildings. He wanted to stay on the mountain. Can you blame him? Years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, I preached a sermon from this passage, and I just want to give you the outline of the sermon, and we'll close with that. And I talked about how mountain. This 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 is the epic of all mountaintop experiences, right? And the thought of that sermon was this: mountaintops are necessary, special times, and we'll never have anything like this. But we know what it's like. If you've been saved any length of time, you know what it's like when God just shows up and speaks to you and ministers to you, and and you see Him in a way you've never seen Him. Before and he works in your life in a powerful way. Mountaintops are necessary. And I'm going to give you three reasons why they're necessary. Number one, they're necessary because of what we're coming away from. These people, these three men, were coming apart to be with Jesus. They were removing themselves from the distractions of the world. They were removing themselves from the hustle and bustle of ministry all the things that went along with that. And I just want to say, all of us need that time when we pull ourselves away from our routine to spend time with the Lord. You know, in essence, that's one thing that makes church services meaningful. It's not just that we come together with our friends and family, we do that. But it's because we... Put aside and leave behind us the worries, the cares of the world and the, the stress of the day-to-day routine. So mountaintops are necessary because of what you're coming away from. But second of all, they're necessary because of what you're coming to. They were coming to meet with Jesus in a way they'd never seen him before. And I want to say again, we kind of heard about this in the Sunday school hour this morning. We need time alone with Jesus to know him better. And again, this is one of the things that gives us an anticipation about church services. To come together, to turn our phones off, to leave all those distractions on the outside and just focus on God and his word. And you know what? They heard God speaking to them. We're not going to hear God speaking to us in an audible voice, but we do hear God speaking to us from his word. Mountaintops are necessary because of where we're coming away from. Mountaintops are necessary because of where we're coming to. But thirdly, mountaintops are necessary because of what we're going back to. See, they had to come down off of this mountain. And we're going to cover this in a week or two, but I want you to look a little beyond where we are right now in Mark chapter 9. And notice what awaited them. Mark chapter 9 and verse 14 it says, And when he came to his disciples, those who were left there at the foot of the mountain, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Verse 17 describes what's happening. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I've brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away, talking about the condition of his son, the spiritual condition. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. We'll cover that passage in a week or two. But the point I want to make is when we come down off the mountain, it's important that we have a meeting with God. It's important that God is real to us. It's important that we hear God's word. It's important that we see Jesus as it really is because when we come down off that mountain, we've got to relate and minister in a world that's in great need. They didn't come down off this mountain to have a book signing event or you know, a testimony time. No, they came down off this mountain to get busy helping people ministering to people and that's the world that we live in you know some people may have the idea that a christian just lives in this place with god where nothing ever affects them they never ever you know have to deal with issues or problems but the truth of the matter is the world is like living the the, the troubles of the world are not upon the mountaintop with god they're in the valley where people live Mountaintops are where we get refreshed. Mountaintops are where we get refocused. Again, that's what, uh, that's what days like today ought to be like. We're going to set aside this day. We're going to come together. We're going to worship God. We're not going to be focused on our, on our phones. We're not going to be focused on what's going on in the news. We're just going to devote this time with God that God can minister to us and refresh us and encourage us and challenge us and teach us because starting in the morning probably many of us are going to be in a world Where we need to be what they need for us to be. These times are to equip us to have the grace, the wisdom to live life. To give leadership to our families. To be a testimony on the job. To be a light that's shining. And and, you know, if we don't have these times alone with God, we're not going to have what people need for us to have. There's a lot in this passage about the transfiguration of Jesus. I've probably preached a dozen messages from it. And I intentionally did not study through any of those messages. But this morning I thought about this brief outline I thought I'd share with you. Mountaintops are important. And I could read that and say, man, I'd like to live that way. You know, just in conversation with Elijah and Moses and Jesus with you in this, in this glorified state where God is speaking audibly but you know what nobody lives there on this side of eternity. those that live there are on the other side of eternity for those of us who are saved that will be the new norm for us one of these days. But even these disciples didn't stay there. As, as quickly as this experience came and left, they were, were alone with Jesus. Which, by the way, is not a bad place to be. Amen? Not a bad place to be.